The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. It is brought to you by the ABSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of African markets. ABSA is a registered FSP. We're going to talk about the budget this evening, criticism coming through of National Treasury, accusations that National Treasury is over-egging the budget pudding, so to speak, over-exaggerating what is going wrong within the fiscus. We'll talk about that with uh, some detail tonight. We did have Sanrol this evening. The Chief Executive of the South African National Roads Agency Limited was due to speak to us about their capital shortfalls, their shortage of cash, um, which has been a long time coming. They cancelled at nine minutes to six. We don't know why. Um, Maybe very busy, but I would have thought it was a good opportunity for the CEO of the National Roads Agency to explain. Because on a day where Private sector road builders, Raubex, and not all of their money is coming from building roads. Maybe that's a lesson. But they've got a huge mining project in Western Australia. It's performing well for them. They've no contribution yet from their Bite Bridge project, but they're still growing their profits in double digits. Results 20% better than this time last year, there or thereabouts. It shows it's possible to make money out of road building, particularly if you can pick and choose your projects. Unfortunately for Sanrel, it can't. It's only got three ways of making money. Um, and it's got, it can get money, I suppose, from borrowing, and it has gone to the bond market in the past. So it can borrow money in the bond market. It can get tolls from national roads. And then there's the annual grant from government to maintain and develop major routes. Those are the three places from which it can get money. Except government, as we know, doesn't have enough money. So Sanrat is short of cash. I want to know why they're short of cash. So if the CEO from Sanral is not available, the chief financial officer, the executive directors, the chairman of the board, somebody's available to explain the problem. If you need help in resolving the problem, there's no better audience than the audience of Cape Talk and 702 to uh, appeal to on that particular front. So I think it's a missed opportunity this evening. But certainly e-tolls were a mechanism to uh, extract funds from uh, from from you as users, and you rebelled against that. You said, no, we're not paying for this. It went to court. I remember Stephen Curtis reporting very clearly on those days where on the Day of Judgment uh, in the High Court in Pretoria, Private Gordon uh, was there as public enterprises. Was he public enterprises minister at the time? So was he finance minister? Probably finance minister at the time. It's a long time ago. It was such a big judgment that Private Gordon actually went into court to hear the judgment. And that was how significant a risk this was to the fiscus. And so this has been a, 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 a car crash, frankly, a long time in the making. Uh, Sanral is short of money, and you are going to have to fund it. You'll fund it through your tax revenues. That's where it's going to come from. And that's why the conversation we're going to have with the Institute for Economic Justice this evening is an important one, because they're arguing that there's plenty of money. We're just not looking in the right places. We'll pick up on that this evening here on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Also still to come this evening, Stephen Boyke Sidley. I think he goes by the Stephen Sidley now because he was, you know, he's a very serious crypto man nowadays. He's written books on the subject. Uh, we'll talk about how blockchain is going to redefine ownership into the future. And then How I Make Money. It's a brand new feature. If there's a profession you would like featured on How I Make Money, uh, you're curious as to, I don't know, how a road painter makes their money. Well, they paint roads. But... You know what I mean.
unusual professions, unusual career choices, that people go into a particular line of work and to become a forensic pathologist, you have to study the living so that once you then get to study the dead, you know what made the living work and therefore you can figure out what made the dead not live anymore. So forensic pathologist Dr. Hestel von Staden this evening has written books on blood and what it can tell you. Uh, well, she's, I think, South Africa's very own Dr. K. Scarpetta from the Patricia Cornwall novels. Uh, but this is real life blood and gut stuff and not for sensitive listeners, but forensic pathology. What an interesting career that is and an interesting career choice that is. So that tonight on this evening's Money Show. On a day where one of the world's most powerful bankers is warning that the globe may be facing the most dangerous time in decades, quote unquote. That's Jamie Dimon, the chief executive of J.P. Morgan Chase. He's told his own investors that he's concerned about the risks to the economy from rising geopolitical tensions. Wars in Ukraine and Israel could hit energy and food prices and, of course, global trade. That means more inflation. He's telling investors they should be prepared to face higher interest rates, persistent inflation, as well as fallout from the violent conflict. And I think he's spot on. Risks in the world right now are very, very elevated. We'll talk um, to somebody from Bank of America. An analyst at Bank of America has compiled an interesting report into food security. And you would think if there's one part of the world that should not have a food security issue, it should be sub-Saharan Africa. But we do. We import far too much of what we consume. We don't have the large-scale agriculture that we should. Um, and we don't do it for the benefit of people living in this part of the world. Much of what we produce is exported because that's the way global trade has evolved over the last couple of hundred years. So that tonight, all coming up on The Money Show. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. We've got a couple of weeks to the medium-term budget policy statement, which by memory seems to be happening later and later. Government is warning that it's going to be the toughest outlook statement yet as it runs desperately short of cash. Analysts are forecasting we could have a budget shortfall of 80 billion rand. Not so, says the Institute for Economic Justice. Things are bad, but not nearly as bad as they're made out to be. Zimbabwe Zimbali Mgube is the Institute's Budget and Tax Justice Research. Zimbali, welcome to The Money Show this evening. Uh, you concede that things are bad, just not as bad as that they're held up to be. Why would National Treasury be exaggerating the depth of the potential fiscal crisis we're led to believe we're headed towards? Thanks for having me on the show. Well, we believe that uh, this is an orchestrated campaign by National Treasury to essentially continue on the unsustainable path that it has pursued since about 2012, um, which is essentially cutting uh, non-interest expenditure, that is government spending, um, in key essential services such as healthcare, education, and social and economic infrastructure. And so... Obviously, when you come out guns blazing, telling the world or the country that there's no money, the short um, cut, uh, 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 excuse the pun, the short route to to resolve that issue is essentially cutting expenditure. And we're saying that this is counterintuitive because um, the GDP, a large share of the GDP is government spending and government spending can play an important role in expanding employment, but also in protecting the socioeconomic rights 
of the many people in our country. Government spending has not achieved that, though. Government spending, since Pravin Gordon was finance minister, has expanded. Uh, government borrowing has expanded. Government expenditure has, in, not in, perhaps in real terms, but certainly in some sectors, has expanded over, over periods of time, yet growth rates have gone perpetually lower and lower. We saw, for example, the contested, admittedly, um, statistic South Africa figures on the, uh, on the population of South Africa, 62 million of us, but in that time, growth has gone up by about 10.5%. We've been spending money and we've been spending money on so-called development economy, a state-led development economy. It's not worked though. It hasn't worked. Uh, And I'm also trying to figure out why it would be in National Treasury's interests to talk up a problem when, of course, it is ultimately run by a political party that wants to be re-elected in the next elections, there seems to be a contradiction in terms there that they would deliberately seek to mislead us. Yeah. So I think uh, it's important, as you've noted partly, that in real terms, so taking into account uh, the population growth and also the number of users in terms of public services, actual spending hasn't increased because it hasn't kept up with uh, the number of people that uh, rely on these services, right? So that's important to note. Um, and this is why we are seeing infrastructure, um, uh, textbooks, and, 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 and essential services essentially crumbling. There is not enough uh, frontline workers and there is not enough uh, people to service the growing population. So that's the first one. And then in terms of the second point, I think it's it's important to ground the Treasury's approach in its ideological outlook and how it sees, um, for instance, the role of the state in driving um, inclusive development, but also in expanding people's capabilities. So Treasury is of the view that um, by spending into the economy, they actually are crowding out private investment and therefore we need to cut spending in the longer run and that this will eventually somehow lead to uh, uh, investment from the private sector. And so what we're saying is that we should reconceptualize um, how we see uh, the fiscal framework and its and its uh, role in the economy. Okay, uh, now ex- explain, Zabal, explain to us who are not in the world of budget and tax justice research, what do you mean by that? Because the governments have got only two possible so- sources of income. One, it comes from taxpayers, and those taxpayers are people who pay value-added tax of uh, 15%. These are people who pay import duties and export duties. These are people who pay income tax, there are companies that pay corporation tax, there are hundreds of different kinds of taxes, but tax is a broad source of income, comes from the people who live and work in the country. The other way is to borrow more money. Where does this, where where does the, you seem to suggest the government should be spending more, however, they are arguing that the cupboard is bare and there could be an 80 billion rand shortfall. I'm wondering where the money that you say should be spent on expanding the public service, expanding infrastructure investment, where yeah. that should come from? Yeah. yeah. So we've, we've proposed a number of key measures, some of which can be done immediately. So in the lead up to the MTBPS and some in the short term. The first of those is um, sourcing the money through 
the South African Reserve Bank's gold and foreign exchange contingency reserve account. And this is basically an account held by the Reserve Bank, which essentially tracks um, losses and gains um, made based on foreign exchange rates and gold prices. And this account is essentially uh, immediately available to the Treasury, and it currently holds about $459 billion, right? This is as per Section 28 of the South African Reserve Bank. It's uh, money that uh, if the Treasury and the Reserve Bank came together, could be made available to expand uh, and close this shortfall that we're speaking about, but also channel the funds into the right direction. But you Secondly, and I, you, you and I know Zimbabwe. If we've got, if we, if we're short of money in our household and we've got an emergency savings account, let's say we've got a hundred thousand rand sitting in an emergency savings account, we've spent too much on our credit card. We, our mortgage is um, we over our head on our mortgage. We are also in trouble on our car loan. So we dig into our emergency reserves and we. Um, instead of paying off the car loan um, and paying off our credit card and getting rid of our debts, all we do is we go and borrow more money to go buy a nicer car, a nicer house and get into more credit card debt because that's what you're essentially proposing. You're not proposing here that we fundamentally shift the way we structure the economy, we fundamentally change the way. And this is the great ideological divide that not only here but in many countries around the world are facing at the moment where – there's private sector that wants to come in and, and save the day. It's happening in the United Kingdom. It happens in the United States. It happens here where we've got a private sector saying, Tuma Mina, we're prepared to put money in. And then there's a pushback from the ideological left who says, no, 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 we can't have these guys coming in. We must simply get more money. Now, we dig into the piggy bank or we can borrow more money, but we're already spending uh, far more on funding our existing debt levels, and that excludes all of the public sector-owned companies, the ESCOMs, the uh, SABCs, the post offices, the transnets, and all of the other government-run yeah, catastrophes. Yeah. We, yeah. Once you dig into savings to spend more without dealing with the fiscal, with the crises on the balance sheets of state-owned companies, we go to hell in a handbasket, do we not? Yeah. So I think it's important to not equate uh, the household budget to a government budget because a a government budget, like I said, essentially can, uh, if channeled towards the right direction, has a multiplier effect. So essentially, I'll I'll make an example with um, the social relief of distress grant, for instance. If it's at a level that is adequate and can can support people's needs and basic necessities, that money is not going to be saved. If you give people money, they're going to spend it back into the economy. Now, that generates a, a stimulus and economic activities, which will eventually expand uh, in the long-term growth. This is the same. This is the same way we should see investing into education as long-term yeah. human can. Zimbabwe, I cannot, I cannot fault the the long-term thinking of what you propose, but in the short term, we have a fiscal crisis. You don't disagree with that. You disagree on the extent of it. Um, for government to go out, no, you're arguing it could be about a fifty billion versus an eighty billion rand shortfall, which, frankly, in government terms, is small change. We have a problem, and is it going to be solved by spending more, or is it going to be solved by cutting? At the moment, we've got a really big divide between the two. Yeah, and what we're saying is that cutting is essentially going to worsen the the problem because it's going to, or it has 
uh, evidence has shown essentially that cutting expenditure essentially increases the debt to GDP ratio, but it also starves the economy of the demand, which is in our case already not there, right? But over and above this, there are idle uh, monies which is proposed, for instance, such as removing tax breaks, uh, which we feel that they are not, and tax subsidies, right? Which we feel that they have been supported by evidence-based research to so to show that actually this has worked you remember that for instance the corporate income tax was reduced to 27 percent from 28 now, to 27 percent and it came into effect i think this year right uh, it came into effect last year in 2022 okay. it was reduced in 2021 and so we have not seen any sort of evidence which has actually been put on the table by those that have said that reducing um, the CIT will actually uh, improve investment or levels of investment. In fact, we, play, we, 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 we calculated and, and found that we've actually lost about 12 billion, right? Zimali, thank you. I mean, again, your statistics are spot on, absolutely. Um, again, the tax break comes at a time where there's very little growth in the economy. So companies, yes, when one looks at executive pay, for example, there is a dichotomy between economic growth and the state of the nation um, and executive pay. Um, executive pay is based on investment returns for shareholders. Uh, and so absolutely, when there's a tax break, does that money come flowing back into the economy? You're right. There's no evidence of it yet working. But is it fair to expect it to work immediately to open up a tap in an environment where there's very low growth? I think we're stuck in a very, very serious position. I am, I, I disagree that we are over-exaggerating the problem. I think the problem is real. Um, at the same time, their economies all over the world. And there's one thing that we have in common with those economies. We're talking about cutting versus expansion without talking about growth, without actually finding the mechanism that stimulates a recovery and gets that recovery coming quickly. That is a topic for another discussion. But thank you, Zimbali Mnube, Budget and Tax Justice Research at the Institute for Economic Justice on what's going to be a crunch two weeks for National Treasury as it prepares for the medium-term budget policy statement. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. To Siboniso Ngomalo. Siboniso is the Chief Investment Officer at the Old Mutual Investment Group. We could get into a long ideological discussion about expansion versus cutting versus borrowing versus spending uh, from the National Piggy Bank. But let's not do that, Siboniso. Let's focus on markets this evening. Quite interesting to see a little bit of a recovery in the RAND. Commodities holding up okay and a, a small gain for the JSE on the day. Yes. Good evening, Bruce. Good evening to you and your listeners. But Bruce, I do want to weigh in. I've got some numbers for you on what the government should do and should not do. And what's going to come up in the medium-term budget. So can I go into it? Please. So, Bruce, one of the things South Africa has is uh, what's called PGMs, Platinum Group Metals. These are the uh, companies that obviously produce platinum, rhodium, and palladium. We use some of these commodities in jewelry. Yeah, the people who are proposing there, they use this by platinum rings, but we also use them more importantly in what's called catalytic converters, which they put in your car and obviously prevents the pollution from coming out of your car. So today in the market, we saw that Northern Platinum is up 
um, almost 5%. Um, MPLAS is up almost um, 3% or so. But Bruce, the key about the plea GMs is that if we take the 13 biggest commodity producers in South Africa and we look at their earnings and what they have done, given what has been relatively very high prices in the PGM space and the commodity space. When we look at that, we say, well, in 2021, the top 13 commodity producers paid in terms of income tax and royalties in South Africa, um, they paid around 110, 111 billion to the fiscus. So in 2023, given what commodity prices have done, which especially the platinum group metals, those have come down, so we've gone from about 113 billion. We are good. Those companies are going to pay in taxes and royalties around 46 billion. So Bruce, we've lost a material amount of money in our fiscus just simply by correcting commodity prices. Now, what's interesting about this is that actually the last time we saw Treasury, this is in in the February budget, they spoke about this. They said, "Hey, corporate income tax collections from high." Commodity prices are temporary, and those are going to decline. And so, Bruce, now this is the chickens are coming home to roost. And so, therefore, now to tie that all up together, um, is that if we look at the total corporate income tax in South Africa, it's about, in February, it was about $336 billion. Now, $100 billion of that came from our, the resources sector. Yeah. So if the resources sector is losing 60 to 70 of that, our taxes are not going to come in. Those are the facts, Bruce. We can have all the opinions in the world. The facts are, actually, our fiscus is struggling. Again, you know, there, there's this belief that money it comes out of fresh air, and it doesn't. It comes from the hard sweat and labor of those who produce value in an economy. And if you're not inspiring those people to produce the value in the economy, unfortunately, you get a very quick tapering off in expansion, investment, and growth. And that is where we are at the moment, a lack of confidence in the economy. And without confidence, you don't get investment. Without investment, you don't get growth. Without growth, you don't get the higher revenues the country need to help all of the people who need the help in the economy. It's exhausting, yeah. but that is the brutal reality. That, that is definitely the brutal reality. So from our fiscal, from corporate income tax, I think we're going to be under pressure. From personal income tax, we should also be under pressure. And we can see that in the retailers' results. The retailers that have come out, this is the true worst, the Foschinis, they're telling us, hey, even pick and pay. These companies are telling us that, hey, we're not, this country's not growing, we're not making revenue. But Bruce, I want to talk about two companies that seem to be growing. Robix. Yes. So Robix is a company that uh, at the old mission investment could be own a very significant portion of this business, over 20% um, on behalf of our shareholders. So they've come out, Bruce, and they've said, hey, we're going to grow our headline earnings by 15 to 20% yep. for the six months to 31. Tough economy a business that actually is exceptionally well run, they are growing despite a tough economy, which means there are projects out there, they are constructing them, and they are very good at renewables, which is a new space for us to grow into. They're also very good in road building. That's their traditional business. And so despite all of this, what's going on, Bruce, there are companies out there who are exceptionally run, who are leading to opportunities. And the second one? The second one is AdCorp. So Edcorp came up with a trading statement again. I think actually you and I, when Edcorp last reported, we spoke about Edcorp. But Edcorp is telling us, hey, South African operations are tough, but they've got a business in Africa. And actually they're telling us that their headline earnings are going to increase between 25 and 45%. Okay, well-run business, Bruce. So despite all the noise, 
every now and then we find some capable businesses and we invest in those. There we go, Sibuniso. Thank you very much indeed. Sibuniso Ngumalo is the Old Mutual Investment Group Chief Investment Officer this evening. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Thank you very much indeed. Coming up in a moment, we will speak to an analyst from Bank of America on the food crisis that the world is facing. Research analyst at Bank of America, Kay Hope, will join us. We'll talk about food and the food crisis that is present and looming in ever-increasing levels of danger. Money Show brought to you by the ABSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. ABSA is a registered FSP. On your next Money Show, our investment school will be looking at technical analysis. It's a suggestion from Mangaliso on social media who says she wants to learn more about the head and shoulders stuff. Okay, we'll do head and shoulders and we'll do other technical analysis stuff. In order to help us do that, Gary Boyson, great communicator on most things to do with investing, including technical analysis. Portfolio manager at Rand Swiss is headmaster in the investment school to explain to us technical analysis and what it is and why it works and why it doesn't. Also, heroes and zeros from the world of advertising, plus all the other big money stories of the day. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Toby Shapshak, the Chief at Stuff Studios, with us coming up in a little while. Uh, Toby, every Monday evening, uh, he goes into the world of technology and finds new and wonderful gadgets. And he loves smartphones and cell phones. And there's so much fierce competition about smartphones. When you go and get yourself a new smartphone, do you worry whether it's got the 4G chipsets that suits the upper mid device? or Snapdragon 778G, or HDR10 support, and 120 hertz refresh rate tick. Huh? All of that technical jargon ultimately comes into the user experience, of course, of smart devices. So yes, it's all important, but is it stuff that you focus on? Or do you simply focus on what looks cool, what works, and what you can afford? My guess is you do that. But if you've got a special technical way of analyzing what your next smartphone should be, do share it with us this evening. Give us a shout or drop us a WhatsApp voice note. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Lots of focus on food insecurity at the moment. ShopRite released a study showing one in five South Africans simply don't know where their next meal is coming from. Backs up many other studies over many years on that particular point. The chief executive of J.P. Morgan Chase today warning that the wars in Ukraine and Israel are creating longer-term instability and uncertainty. Certainly the war in Ukraine has had a huge impact on food inflation, but further conflicts around the globe push up the prices of commodities and the price of uncertainty, of course, then ultimately feeds into your household budget. And food security is something we should all be worried about. Bank of America recently report, uh, releasing a report that addresses what they call the urgency of transforming our global food systems to ensure a more sustainable, equitable and a resilient future. It highlights the intersection of the environmental and social challenges and says they've got data to show the state of food insecurity worldwide. One of those researchers is Kay Hope. Kay is a research analyst at Bank of America on the line to us this evening. Kay, thank you very much for joining us on The Money Show. Please explain to us um, what needs to change in the global food system to bring a sustainable, equitable and resilient future, as you put it. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. 
the bad news is a lot of things to cha- are need to change. But I think the good news is the same. A lot of things need to change and can change. By 2050, we expect the world to have 9.8 billion people on it. And one in four of those will be African. We need to to fix some of the food insecurity issues that are particularly strong in Africa. You know, today, 3.1 billion people around the world can't afford a healthy diet. We need to be looking at near-term solutions and long-term solutions. Near-term solutions for things like reducing food waste. A third of the food grown every year is wasted. Is it that much? How I mean, I, I, I'm, aware, I'm aware of this, Kay. I mean, you know, we, we get lots of statistics. And in South Africa, and I'm sure many other parts of the world, the retailers are getting much better at taking sort of end-of-shelf-life food and putting it into the system to ensure that charities and other people are able to use it. And it's put to good use. But even so, so much stuff ends up even from household fridges ending up in landfill and ending up getting wasted but a third of produced food i don't know where that statistic comes from it's an alarming number please explain it further it's it's an enormous number i mean if you think about the land mass it takes to grow wasted food it's larger than china and think of the water that it takes and the labor that it takes and part of that is in some parts of the world food is simply very very cheap Um, such as in the U.S., also in the U.K., but in other parts of the world, there are issues with food waste at the beginning of the chain, so getting food from the field to a place of sale. How can we help people to improve their refrigerated storage, improve their harvesting techniques? Um, And at the same time, how do we help educate people about planning meals at home, wasting less food at home, being just a little bit more savvy in what they buy and, and what they do with it and how long they can keep it. And so much of the, the food wastage issue does seem to be a first world issue. So in developing markets, it would be very nice to get some of that food that is going to waste, but it's based on the way the supply chains work, based on the way in which the food global food traffic works. I'm not too sure that this is an easy problem to solve by simply reverse osmosis, if you like, of, of the global food system. How do you suggest we ta- begin to tackle it? No, I think you're absolutely right. But some of the solutions do go towards this idea of short-term and longer-term. So in the short-term, it's about healthy eating and encouraging healthy eating and encouraging populations to understand healthy foods, but also to make healthy food affordable and accessible. It's cheaper to eat junk food. So how do you make those things cheaper? Actually, when I did my research, one of the things we found is South Africa, like the UK, has a tax on fizzy drinks. And that is used to pay for other things. Um, How can we take some of those potential taxes and use those to subsidize things like fresh foods so that you have a combination of education and communications with consumers, but also some sort of a financial incentive to encourage healthy eating? You know, longer term, we need to think about resilience and, and helping farmers, especially in places like Africa, which are so so affected by climate change, how do we help them to access seeds that might be more resilient to either drought or flood? How do we help people to grow things that are going to be more effective? How do we make sure that people can afford to buy fertilizer so that they can grow 
things that are more valuable down the road. You know, that's an issue that we're having this year. Fertilizer is very expensive. Some people will change what they grow in order to cope, which makes it difficult at the far end. And this is where, I mean, just geopolitics comes into the mix as well. Russia's decision to invade Ukraine, the so-called breadbasket of Europe, massive consequences for food production. But at the same time, sanctions then imposed against Russia push up the cost of fertilizer because Russia happens to be one of the world's biggest producers of the stuff. So this this globally interconnected world, Kay, how do we sort of restore some kind of a balance, particularly for the African continent, who's got a population that is growing in excess of the global average, in an environment that it could be more drastically affected than many parts of the world in terms of climate change, in an environment where we underutilize this wonderful resource of land, which is available to us if we harness it properly and effectively? I mean, I would love to tell you that we can build enormous farms in Africa and it will be all solved very, very quickly, but I think it's easier said than done. It's certainly something that that people are looking at, um, but it's time-consuming. Have we, have we lost you, Kay? Sorry. Um, you, you no, no, no. Oh, no. Oh, sorry, there we go. Occasionally the line's cut out. It is time-consuming. Of course it's time-consuming. Um, and it's very difficult to do. And it's, you know, it's something that needs to start yesterday. How much work is being done? I mean, real practical work that gives you some sort of sense of optimism that that 2050 goal of feeding the 9.8 billion of us who are going to be breathing the same air and sipping on the same scarce water resources, um, that there will be enough food to go around and it'll be in the right places at the right time? From the research we did, it sounds like a lot of things are happening that hopefully can eventually be scaled up. In everything like um, we saw a really interesting group of projects being done in India to create these sort of poly houses. They're, they're sort of like a greenhouse, but they're made with uh, plastic sheeting that are quite easy to construct. They help to protect crops from inclement weather. They make for much more efficient water usage and you can actually grow more in a smaller space. So that's something that can be looked at. Some things like um, quite simple technologies can be introduced. Um, There were some introduced in Senegal quite a few years ago that caused uh, harvest rates to go from 35% loss to 1% loss. So that's something that's that's really helpful. You can also... Uh, improve things like movement of products. How can you transport your production in a way that means less loss by the time you arrive at storage? Um, How can you store things in a way that keeps them fresher longer? And then all the way down to things like packaging that can keep things fresher longer. So there are a lot of different things that can happen all along the chain to drive those improvements. Kay Hope, thank you very much indeed. Kay is a research analyst at Bank of America on the line to us this evening from the United Kingdom. Yeah, we've got to think more like the Dutch, frankly. I mean, the Dutch are land scarce. They really are. They've half, well, a third of the country is reclaimed from the ocean. Yet, they are the biggest, second biggest food exporter in the world after the United States. How? Well, they grow things in tunnels. They grow things up rather than across. In South Africa, we've got these vast expanses of land. Um, in many of cases, you know, it's, it's dry land agriculture and you can't grow mealies on vines. It would be nice if we could.
Um, maybe there's a, a hybrid solution in there somewhere. Um, but you've, we've got to find smarter ways of farming. And we've got the enormous capabilities of the likes of ZZ2 and others who produce tomatoes on extraordinary bits of land. But we've got to be thinking more like the Dutch, thinking more like the Israelis, frankly, do when it comes to agriculture um, and focus in on what people in land and water-scarce parts of the world are doing to make food more readily available. That's going to be one of the solutions into the future. But a fascinating report by Bank of America as we look at the food, global food crisis that is present in many parts of the world. A third of food wasted. That's an astonishing statistic. I'd like to delve into that one a bit further. But the Chief at Stuff Studios, Toby Shepchak, is standing by and he takes no prisoners. Uh, He is uh, going to talk to us about the new Huawei Nova 11 Pro, talking smartphones this evening and all the jargon that comes with them. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Tech with Toby on a Monday night. Toby Shepshack, the Chief at Stuff Studios, with us tonight. Another day, another cell phone, another lot of technical jargon with which to befuddle us, Toby Shepshack. Do help me please understand why the Huawei Nova 11 Pro is the phone to which you will go tonight. Firstly, I, I just want to say, I heard what you said about me and the description uh, of of the Nova 11 Pro that Stuff wrote and we sent to you or I sent you. I heard you, Bruce. Um, but don't worry, I won't take it personally. I do think... Uh, I'm just asking, you, I'm you asking see, the layman's question, Toby, and I, I, I bow to your technical <laughs> superiority and your, your genius level knowledge on all of these things, but I've never worried frankly, about the, and I should, the the, the refresh yes. rate tick on my phone. Oh, I've never asked that question, and, and, and I will and next nor, time. Nor should we. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know the first thing about an internal combustion engine. I've been driving cars for 30 years, Bruce. What do you know? You know, we we, we are enthralled by digital technology because of how quite remarkable it is actually and the and the changes that go on so i I mean we include all of the information obviously on stuff but but i like to talk about it in terms of what i see the the great features on in fact apart from this being a really great phone um it's very well priced Seventeen thousand rand for what you get is, is very good um it's got 120 hertz refresh rate. That's very, very important if you're a gamer. HDR10 support, which means you can you can watch fluid video. Uh, and it has a really nice big 6.78 inch OLED screen. I really, really wish we could talk about phones in centimeters instead of inches, but there you go. But what makes it stand out, Bruce, is the very nice arrangement of cameras on the back. There are three Pretty impressive uh, lenses on the back. The forty, uh, the fifty, sorry, fifty megapixel main lens is in a large circle, but on either side of it, there's an eight megapixel ultra wide camera mm-hmm. and a two megapixel depth camera. But they, those are inside an oval, which has this little circle in the middle. So you know you're starting to see a very interesting different delineation of 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 smartphone brands um, with with different. Mm-hmm organizations of the camera ran. I think this one looks looks really quite nice, actually, uh, well, quite Jen, pretty. And it's it's a very nice green color. No, um, that's important. But what stands out mm-hmm. is, yes, what I'm, stands out is that 
I think the most people, Toby, sorry, yes, the selfie two. camera. The, here's the point, Toby. People, you yes. say to people, why do you choose that phone? Because it's got a good camera. Not because it's you know, the refresh rate and stuff. It's all about the camera nowadays, frankly, because it's with us all the time and it's how we totally. record our lives. I, and I agree with you. I've been saying this to cell phone manufacturers for years and you'll see the marketing around all of this has changed and, and, and the people speak more about the benefits than they do the features, obviously, because nobody buys a car because it's got a, I don't even know what the stuff's called anymore. But it's like a V8 carburetor. In fact, I know they aren't carburetors anymore. They have fuel injection. Anyway, so, so you buy a phone because it's got a fantastic cameras, a good touchscreen, you know, you're a fan of the operating system, but what really stands out about this Nova 11 Pro is it's got two selfie cameras, Bruce, a whopping 60 megapixel ultra wide lens and an eight megapixel portrait lens. So you get really fantastic selfies. And frankly, most people, that's what they do with their phones these days. So I think that's a really clever inversion of the obsession of putting bigger and bigger and, you know, more and more cameras on the back, you know, the, the these are not ostensibly much more than what was there last year in the Nova 10 Pro, but the increase in the selfie cameras is, is, is I think, a very clever move. And that's I found very good strategic thinking a, because a, you're quite right. Maybe you, not you and I, because we're not as good looking as this next generation, clearly, but definitely your sons and my son eventually, you know, they're going to be taking yeah, selfies. They're not going to be taking pictures of where they are. I found a discarded Sony Ericsson phone, which I think I used for about a week, a hundred years ago. And I think it had a two megapixel camera on it. Things have improved dramatically. Um, huge. Huge, absolutely. Thank you, Toby Shapshak, the chief at Stuff Studios. It's all about the cameras. Yeah, the phone's got to work and you've got to be able to send a WhatsApp and you've got to be able to surf and watch your movies and play your games and all of that sort of stuff. But with, if the camera is rubbish, your phone's never going to sell. And the cell phone uh, manufacturers have finally worked that out, probably, because Toby told them. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Haven't spoken about cryptocurrency for a while. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried in court, of course, fighting for to keep himself out of jail for what will be the, the remainder of his productive life for an enormous fraud um, in the world of cryptocurrency. But it's not about the cryptocurrency. that That's about the human way of dealing with cryptocurrency. Two bites at the cryptocurrency. Cherry this evening, if you'd like. Um, one is going to be on speculation that we finally get to see uh, US SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, approved regulation around exchange-traded funds to invest in cryptocurrencies. That sent the cryptocurrency valuations going up today. And then um, uh, we're going to speak to an author on cryptocurrency and he really has been a, a leading light in South Africa, Stephen Sidley has, when it comes to the our understanding of the world of cryptocurrency, the world of blockchain. Tonight it's more about blockchain than it is about crypto, although it'll be, of course, about crypto. On The Money Show, brought to you by APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. We did see a surge in the value of cryptocurrencies earlier this morning and then the heat came out of it. The possibility that the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States will soon approve what will be the first spot Bitcoin exchange traded fund. Um, and it could be the catalyst that cryptocurrencies have been waiting for. 
or it could be the beginning of the end of cryptocurrencies. We saw certainly at one stage cryptocurrencies rallying very, very strongly, ending the day in our terms up about 3 or 4%. Karl Diacher is the blockchain lead at the CSIR on the line to us from Pretoria this evening. Uh, Karl, this, I mean, it's long been speculated. What's giving the market this enthusiasm that the SEC is about to launch approval for a, for a, a crypto exchange traded fund? Yeah, Bruce, I mean, it's been way overdue and the market's been anticipating this now for many months, I'd say even years. Um, you know, there's been many applications uh, from institutional investors in uh, in America. And the uh, most recent one is actually from BlackRock, you know, which carries a lot of weight. So the market has been saying, but BlackRock only, I think in, in all their years of investing and operating in the U.S., they've only had one out of something like 500 ETF applications denied. So, you know, that was kind of the catalyst of saying, okay, well, if BlackRock's going to apply, then we're quite sure that this needs to be approved. But, uh, yeah, it turned out to be fake news today. Fake news at all. So, again, it was it was very clear that it was speculative um, and it wasn't clear as to when there'd be an announcement, but something was the catalyst for that speculation. And I suppose in an interconnected world, it doesn't take much in a hyped-up environment like crypto can be from time to time um, to spread the word around and get excitement going. Yeah, so today, um, I mean, the market is currently thin. There's not a lot of volume. So, you know, any rumor causes the, the lot of volatility at the moment um, because we've had quite a lack of volatility for a few months. And it was confirmed to be fake news. It was a media house called Cointelegraph, which, um, which later did re- retract their statement um, and apologized. Uh, they're still carrying out an investigation. So, yeah, unfortunately, not yet. And I'm afraid, you know, this does give more... Um, Armor to the SEC to deny the um, spot ETF. I mean, they've had lots of reasons to do it, um, to, um, the, to 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 deny the applications for in the last few months. You know, there's been valid concerns about market manipulation. Um, uh, even though the ETF applications have surveillance agreements in place with with Coinbase. Um, you know, the vast majority of volume happens on finance, and um, finance is sometimes uh, suspicious with their behavior. Um, and you know, the cryptocurrency models, business models, do carry a lot of risk. That was one of the other SEC concerns. Um, if I can quickly give an example, for instance, conventional stock exchanges, they only do order matching between buyers and sellers, but the settlement of trades and the custody of the share certificates are actually not part of the same entity. So if the trading house goes bankrupt, you know, you can take your shares and you can trade somewhere else. For instance, you won't lose 90% of your special shares if the JC goes under, for example. But in crypto, you know, it's all under the same roof. Uh, and it's actually quite ridiculous. But there's no legal separation between your assets and the exchange. So if uh, the exchange goes bust, your, your Bitcoin is gone. So, you know, um, and so, so there were definitely a lot of valid concerns by the SEC uh, leading up to, 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 to that now. Um, and there's been a lot of back and forth between industry and the regulator um, to try and make this industry safer and, uh, you know, to make it suitable for an ETF. I mean, is it likely ever that we will get a regulated ETF until uh, before we have an industry that is regulated, the, 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 the providers of these things and the the platforms on which they trade? Because I can't imagine the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried right now is doing any favors to anybody in the world of crypto. 
Yeah, that that is true. I mean, it, there's not a very good track record. But I do believe, you know, like maybe the, during the next, maybe during this administration, I don't want to say no. I think I think the chances are very high, and even the Bloomberg analyst um, put the chances of something around 90% for an ETF before the end of next year. Um, and, you know, during this time, there will also be a change in administration. I mean, there's, while the SSC does have valid concerns to deny ETF applications, They've also been extremely overly hostile to the industry as well, you know, like, um, and and to be honest, they, they have shown um, various instances of complete incompetence. Um, you know, like they provide zero guidance on policies and they just decide to rule through enforcement rather than debate. Um, so, for instance, to date, they still refuse to clarify whether cryptocurrencies are securities or commodities or currencies. Um, and they suffered a series of losses against the industry already, you know, Ripple, Grayscale, um, and others. Uh, and, you know, Gary Gaines, the, the SEC chair, is sometimes in those Senate hearings, he's, a, he's actually a complete embarrassment for the U.S., in my opinion. So, you know, the SEC, it, there's, there's two ways to look at this. Yes, the cryptocurrency uh, market and industry is not doing itself any favors, like you've heard. Like you, like you say, but um, also the the SEC is, is also um, extremely hostile, even overlooking some of the good things in the industry. No, absolutely, and I think I, mean, I thank you for your perspective. It's always sobering uh, to get your perspective, Carl. Thank you, Carl is the blockchain lead at the CSIR and uh, gives wonderful perspective on issues related to uh, crypto and to, of course, the blockchain. And we'll pick up a little bit more on the blockchain with Stephen Boyke Sidley in just a little bit. But it's fascinating that this is still the wild west of investment opportunities, and the SEC is not going to be bullied into uh, coming out with an exchange-traded fund anytime soon. When I saw that story earlier today, I was somewhat skeptical, but there was speculation that was about to happen. That speculation was driving the market, hence the discussion and hence the clarity that we have from Carl Diach this evening, the blockchain lead at the CSIR, all fueled by hope and optimism that there would be a breakthrough, but unlikely in the next, what, 14, 15, 16 months. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show. Business books. Stephen Sidley, he is the author of a book called It's Mine, How the Crypto Economy is Redefining Ownership. Uh, there was interesting speculation since debunked, Stephen, uh, that we may finally get an ETF getting SEC approval. Um, quickly debunked and quickly withdrawn by the people who started the speculation in the first place. And just listening to Carl Diacher at the CSIR, it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. Do you sort of feel a bit sort of deflated by that or is it something that you would anticipate? No, I don't feel deflated at all. I was very surprised that there was a rumor that it was going to be approved, which is early, but as long as 14 months. Uh, the best expectations of all the financial global wonks is that it'll be approved by January for at least BlackRock and probably seven or eight other ETFs that are in the queue. And it's quite clear that the SEC can't fight this forever. It will happen. Okay, it will happen, just not 
yet. Now, talk to me, please, about about your book. This is a book about crypto. Yes, it's about crypto because crypto is on the minds of absolutely everybody. But my sense of it is it's far more about the technology behind the crypto, which is this mysterious place called the blockchain, than it is about the crypto itself. Yes, in fact, it's more about the philosophy behind crypto. There is no technical jargon in the book whatsoever. And, you know, in in about 2020, uh, early 2021, it became evident to me that what was happening on the blockchain was very much more than cryptocurrency. If you talk to anybody about what's a blockchain about, they would probably say Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. But all around us, there were these strange creatures that had suddenly grown out of the swamp. And I'll, I'll give you, throw out a couple of terms to you, which you'll recognize. NFTs, yes. the metaverse, Web3, uh, GameFi, DeFi, all of these things were suddenly arising in 2021 and upending entire industries. And if you had to ask anybody sort of in the know, what was the common thread? They would say the blockchain, but that was not the right answer. The the conceit that came upon me and and what I wrote about is what all these things were, um, the thread that went through all of them was they all facilitated a different way of owning things, which is why it's called It's Mine. Underneath, the blockchain is just the harness. It's just the transport mechanism for a bunch of very fancy mathematical cryptography, the details of which do not have to be known to understand why this is so transformative and important for civilization. And at the core of it, Bruce, is that everything that we think we own, almost everything, we don't. So you think you own your identity, but you don't. Your government owns your your um, the, the original copy of your birth certificate and anybody who's lost their birth certificate and can't get it back <laughs> will know how difficult it is to get yes. back. A billion and a half people in the world have no documentation at all. You think you own your car. You don't. If somebody at the, the traffic department gets hold of your uh, registration for your car, it can be forged or lost. You think you own your money. You don't. Your bank owns your money and banks have gone out of business and your government can, by law, seize your money as they did in Cyprus and Lebanon in the earlier part of the century. So your your tether to what you think you own is it much more tenuous than we like to believe. And cryptography was the first invention in human history where there was a mathematical way that you did not need those external parties to take custody of your trust. The trust could be devolved into the mathematics and you don't need a traffic department and you don't need a government to hold your ID and you don't need... You know, if you lose your computer and you've lost the receipt to the computer store, you try to get the insurance to pay out. They won't. They need to see the receipt. You hand over attestation of ownership to third parties your entire life. And cryptography has afforded a way for you to own the stuff immutably. This is not only digital stuff. This is real stuff as well. Immutably without relying on anybody else. Uh, even if I own my ID via via the blockchain, I, I still run into the same problem, don't I, though, that the state has the original of my ID and is still the custodian of that identity. The bank is still the custodian of the money. By putting it on the blockchain, whether it be a dollar or an ID, how does that protect, how does that give me sovereignty over those things versus the way things work at the moment? Within the legal structures that we have now, and particularly the the legacy structures, Bruce, which have been in in place for hundreds and hundreds of years, I'm talking here in principle. Okay. It's not a practical thing to imagine you can own your own ID in South Africa. But if you're in Estonia, 
or Singapore, you most certainly do own your ID. The government no longer does that. It is on the blockchain, and you have a direct relationship with your identification that defines you. Same with money. We don't own our money, and we can't suddenly put our money on the blockchain if it's in rands, but we can certainly put our money on the blockchain if it's Bitcoin or or a stablecoin or one of the many other um, uh, blockchain creatures that are available to us. Uh, explain. For instance, and okay, no, just, uh, I, I give, okay. I was just about to say a, a fair part of my portfolio is on the blockchain. It has value, a great deal of value, and it has governments have no access to it at all. I can use it to buy things. It does not suffer from a depreciation of the rand because it's attached to stablecoin. So it is true that I own my own money on the blockchain. Talk to me about what the blockchain looks like. And I'm going to give you a demonstration of this. A, a colleague of mine 20 years ago, we were working in the same company, 23 years ago, working in the same company. Um, the internet was but a baby. Um, media platforms were expanding on the internet. And uh, my colleague's granny said to him one day, so where do you work? And he said, well, I work on the internet. And she said, oh, that's lovely, dear. And the one day she said, I want to go and see, I want to go and see your office. And... He said, okay, then, and brought her to the office, took her into the boardroom, which looked like every other boardroom in the world, took her around the office, which looked like every other office, and she went, is this the internet? Um, so my understanding of the blockchain is a little bit like that. I'm a bit perplexed as to <laughs> what it looks like. I, I've, I have, after 23 years, kind of figured out what the internet looks like. Uh, how does the blockchain look different from the internet, if that's not too dumb a question? Okay, that, that's, that, that's a wonderful analogy. The blockchain is a database. It's no more or no less. Is a record from of transactions chained together since the very first transaction. So let me use Bitcoin as an example. Of course, there are many other blockchains with many other things on, as, as I've described before, NFTs and metaverses and things. But if we take Bitcoin as an example, it is a database of every single Bitcoin in transaction from the very first transfer of 10 Bitcoins in 2010. That's all it is. It is a database that exists on hundreds of thousands of computers in identical form. Why does it exist on hundreds of thousands of computers in identical form? Because those computers are not collaborating with each other. They're all anonymous to each other. So for anybody to try and take control of this monetary system, they must take control of 50%, 1% of those 100,000 computers, which they can't do. So the decentralization, which is a term that is thrown around, has to do with having this identical database on many, many different anonymous and non-collaborating computers so that it is very difficult to cheat. The second thing is because of the mathematics underneath, nobody can come in and hack this thing. It is mathematically unhackable because if you make a change, if you make a change to an entry, the mathematics screams klaxons and sirens and stops. Whereas in a bank, as we know, if you have a bad employee at a bank, they can change the entry on your account. If you have a bad employee in the traffic department, they can steal your, your license and et cetera, et cetera. There is nobody to trust. There is nobody to trust except the mathematics and nobody can make the change because the mathematics won't allow it. So it's a database is the short answer okay. to your question. It's a special type of database. It can't be hacked. And because I was born in the 18th century, everything is owned by somebody. Nobody owns this database, which is the biggest mindset shift of all, I think, that we need to get our heads around. Because we're used to a world in which 
somebody owns the thing that we rely on and uh, you know microsoft provides the software and we kind of think that if we lose our computer we can go to bill gates and he'll give us our our, our data back for example when things go awry right. on the blockchain there's nobody to shout at because nobody owns it and that's freaky i think to uh, that, to to get your mind around it is freaky in fact the entries on the blockchain are owned by people. I own my account, which holds my Bitcoin in there. But the blockchain software itself, which governs all of this, which adds the new transaction to the database, which ensures that it's unhackable and immutable, the software that governs it is not owned by anybody. There is no corporation, there is nobody to sue, and there is nobody for a government to put in prison, and it is global. So you're entirely right. There is no ownership of the technological ecosystem which holds my account, which is in total contrast to my account at a bank, which is, quite frankly, owned by the bank and at the mercy of perhaps a bad employee who may steal it, or just a mistake, which may take me half an hour sitting on hold to, to the contact center to sort out. It's an entirely different way of viewing the safety of one's ownership where one doesn't have to rely on a third party like a bank or a, a state to attest to and to take custody of. But who pays then for the blockchain? I mean, if it is, a, if, if it is an entity that relies on software, software costs money. Um, connecting all of the software, making sure that the software talks to each other and one day I can call up the software when I need it, somebody surely has to be funding it somehow. Right. So so there are two ways this is done. The first one is there is a small transaction fee ah. that is that is sliced off of each transaction. In the case of the second biggest blockchain, which is called Ethereum, second to Bitcoin, there is a thing called gas. And every time I send Alice... 10 ETH, 10 ether because I need to send her some money. There is a small thing that is sliced off of that, and that goes into a pool which keeps the network operating. There are different techniques to keep people incentivized, because that's what we're talking about, to keep this whole thing up and running. These 100,000 people. There is a thing called mining, which you would have heard about, which yep. allows people to mint the currency and keep a small piece for themselves for the effort that they're putting in. It pays for the electricity which is used for the minting. It's a transaction fee for lack of a better description, a very small one compared to the transaction fees that you see at the end of the month on your bank statement. I I, I still, again, it, it, it's, forgive me for being thick about this, Stephen, but it's just, it, it's a fundamentally different way of thinking of ownership. Um, it feels almost yes. socialist in its construct, in, in the purest sense of it, in, in its construct. It's there for everybody for everybody's benefit, for everyone to use to, you know, to whatever extent they choose to use it. And it's available for almost nothing. Yeah, it's available for almost nothing. And, and there is an added point which you, 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 you sort of sparked here, Bruce, which I, which I have to address. It's the most financially inclusive monetary system in history. Yeah. I'll give you an example. If you go to the bank with 100 million rand and say, I'd like to open an account, Versus a person who goes to the bank with 20 rands and says, I'd like to open the account. Do you get treated differently? Of course. In fact, the person with 20 rand is not going to get an account. They, they don't get enough. Exactly. And the person, that's right. The person with 100 million rand is going to get invited to dinners and, and yachts and get their, their calls answered immediately. The blockchain is open to absolutely anybody. You don't have to have a passport. You don't have to have an ID. 
you simply have to have a computer in order to make it work or a cell phone. So it is financially inclusive to the extent to which there are hundreds of millions of people who are undocumented in third world countries who now find a way to protect their wealth by having their wealth on a blockchain. This is tr in, true in El Salvador. This is true in Turkey. This is true in Nigeria. This is true all over the world. And it is simply a better monetary system. But I do want to stress my book called It's Mine um, does not get into how this technology works. There are thousands of books around them, yes. around that. They are, they are deep in the weeds of technology. They are scary. They are jargon-laced. I specifically wrote this book for people who know nothing about how the blockchain works and do not really want to understand the technical details but to understand rather why on a principle and philosophical and psychological basis, why this stuff is so important to us at this point in time. At what point is it mainstream? I mean, I, I realize that it's you know, probably 10 times bigger than it was last week and 10 times bigger than the week before, but it's still not mainstream. I still don't have my bank putting my assets on the blockchain. It's still, you know, if there was still a postal service, I would still get a letter once a month with a bank statement in it. As it happens, I, I get an email with a bank statement and the laughing emoji from the bank manager um, and, uh, and and commiserations and all sorts of other things. At what point does the blockchain become the mechanism by which our ownership of our assets is normal? It's sooner than you think, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Visa has just announced that they are now piloting the settling of 500,000 merchants on the blockchain. What does this mean? When you go into pick and pay tomorrow and you buy something, you will get your purchase approved within about seven seconds on the point of sale machine. The merchants pick and pay only gets paid the next day. And if your credit card was, if you were an Armenian and you came for a visit to South Africa, pick and pay would only be settled days later. Uh, what Visa is doing now is settling the merchant on the blockchain, which means that the merchant gets okay. settled five minutes after the transaction is done. That's the first one. The second one is the Boston Consulting Group is is now predicting that by 2030, you asked when, um, 16 trillion rands, sorry, dollars worth of assets will be run on the blockchain, and that is 10% of global GDP. It will be mainstream within the next decade. Stephen Sidley, the author of a book called It's Mine, How Crypto Economy is Redefining Ownership. It's way beyond the silliness of the NFTs and the nonsense that people were doing on there. It's all got a huge practical application as explained in glorious detail by Stephen Sidley this evening. If you've ever read... Uh the work of Patricia Cornwall, you know that one of her heroines in a series about a forensic pathologist is Dr. K. Scarpetta. You do have to have a fairly firm constitution to read those books because they are about the gory aftermath of unfortunate deaths. Somebody who makes a living out of dealing with the remains of people who've met unfortunate ends is Dr. Histel van Staden. She's a forensic pathologist. What does it take to become a forensic pathologist? Why do you become a forensic pathologist? Why is it that you choose that career? This time on a Monday, we look at people with interesting careers, people with careers that you may not have considered for yourself. And if you are somebody who's concerned about um, your progeny or relatives who are struggling to make career choices, you may very well hear something on a Monday evening edition of The Money Show. You go, oh, you know what? 
that might suit little Johnny or little Seaswear or whatever the case might be. We should get the podcast for them and you will play them the podcast and they will career choices will unfold before them. And we prefer the ones that are, you know, a little bit more edgy than, you know, accountant is important and you have edgier accountants than others. But some accountants do more interesting things. Not that accounting is not, oh, don't dig the hole any deeper. Tonight, let's focus on a really interesting career choice. And that is the career choice of forensic pathologist. Dr. Hestel von Staden is a forensic pathologist, has written a blood has a voice. Tales from the Autopsy Table. And this makes me think that you're a bit like Dr. K. Scarpetta, Dr. Hestel von Staden. Um, Dr. K. Scarpetta, I'm sure you're familiar with the novels written around her work based on Patricia Cornwall's books. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's about deciphering what has gone wrong at the end of somebody's life or what has happened to them um, to cause their life to end. Absolutely. You are so right. And, you know, just what to say, I absolutely love Kay Scarpetta. And um, as much as I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, it was once I started reading the books written by Patricia Cornwall um, about <laughs> Kay Scarpetta that the penny actually dropped and I realized this is exactly what I want to do. So, yes, um, <laughs> I do know her and I do love her. <laughs> Okay, no, I'm glad. I'm glad I've, I've not got it completely wrong. So you have to study medicine there. So you have to study what makes people tick to then work out what makes them stop ticking, to figure out the cause of death. I mean, that is ultimately the job of the forensic pathologist, right? Yes, but only in unnatural um, deaths, actually. Ah. So forensic pathology really look at deaths which are unnatural. We do sometimes do um, autopsies on natural deaths as well, but those would mostly be the sudden, unexpected, unexplained deaths, which are by law regarded as unnatural until a post-mortem examination has been conducted. Um, so mostly what we look at is trauma, um, those kind of deaths. And and you and in order to get, become a forensic pathologist, take me through the education process, please, of getting there. Because what we're trying to do here is to explain to people what you need to do in order to get the outcome such as you've achieved. Now, you, did you go off to medical school as any normal person wanting to study medicine would do? Yes, like any other normal person. I'm, I also regard myself as normal. So. Of course you are. <laughs> so um, I went to medical school, so that's six years of studying. Um, where after one does, at, when I studied, it was one year of in, um, internship, now it's two years, and then you do a year of community service, and thereafter you then need to apply for a registrar post. So a registrar is basically a doctor, which is, you know, a qualified doctor, which is in training. So it's basically in-service training, and um, for different specialities, the length of the training differs. For, for us, it is an, an additional four years. My and once you've done that four years, you need to do um, well, it has changed since I've qualified. Now you need to do a master's degree as well as write your what we call college exams. Um, when I qualified, you needed to have done either one of those. So, um, so it's six years and then another three and then another four, and then you can regard yourself as a specialist forensic pathologist. 13 years of study, indeed. <laughs> Now, I was having a, a really interesting conversation as much as you can um, with somebody in specialist dentistry and just going, you know, would you have made a different life choice based on all of the years of study? And he said, yes, I would have. 
it's not worth it financially anyway i think he gets great satisfaction out of reconstructing people's faces but this idea of studying for 13 years of your life before you can earn a decent income is quite scary and especially considering the huge upfront cost of that education absolutely but you need to remember that after you've qualified as a doctor whilst you're doing internship and community service you might not be earning a great salary but you are actually earning a salary so you are employed by the state you earn a salary, you have all the normal benefits. So you get pension, you have leave, sick leave, uh, medical aid contributions. And then when you do start doing your speciality, that four years, you are also employed. And it's really not comparable to people working in private practice at that stage already. But I mean, it is a decent salary um, at that stage. But yeah, no, you're definitely not going to be the money spinner if you're doing forensic pathology, let's be honest. As a forensic pathologist, are you employed by the state? Can you be a private sector forensic pathologist? Yes, you can. So in my case, I worked um, solely in the state for a long period of time. And then I decided I wanted to do both um, forensic pathology, uh, well, private and state work. So I then resigned my full-time post. At the moment, I do sessions at the Johannesburg um, Forensic Pathology Service Medical Legal Laboratory, which is basically the Brown-Fontaine Mortuary. So I do sessions there um, a few times a week. And then for the rest of the time, I do private work. So that would be medical legal opinions, private post-mortems. Um, and you are entitled to do that if you want to. I mean, again, I think, you know, in particularly in deeply traumatic cases where people are, are, are don't, you know, they, they get an outcome from the from the, the sort of the public outcome and they want to challenge the outcome. They say it's not possible that my loved one would have taken their own life and they may want to challenge the uh, the, the conclusions of, 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 of a report and look for effectively a second opinion. Correct. Absolutely. So. um Often when we do private postmortems, it's either redoing a postmortem which had already been conducted in state because um, in terms of the law, any unnatural death requires a medical legal investigation of death that is conducted in a state facility by a state forensic pathologist. But the family is entitled to obtain a second opinion. So either we redo that postmortem and see whether um, you know, that second postmortem, you, you compile your own report, which is then handed to the family, not to the state, as one would um, do as the state pathologist. Or you can actually do what we call a watching brief, where you attend the original postmortem, which is being conducted by the state pathologist, all the while making your own notes and compiling your own report. And families are entitled to that if they want to have it done. I want to talk about the. the I mean, I, I just for, for most people, um, the the idea of of doing the work that you do, and it's it, it feels like saintly work, is is petrifying. It's it's having to face not only your own mortality but the horrors of humanity, and trying to find justice, I suppose, for for those left behind, mm. and to try and find answers that we otherwise would not have access to. You, what was the motivation? What was that tipping point? You say reading the case, Carpetta um, stories written by Patricia Cornwall were a catalyst, but there you are studying the living and studying healing people and you go, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to find out the causes of unnatural deaths. That is a huge leap, is it not, from one discipline to another? I suppose so, but for me it was slightly different, Bruce. I studied medicine to do forensic pathology, not the other way okay. around. It wasn't a decision I came to at a later stage. I was 14 when I decided that I want to be a forensic pathologist. 
Um, when I grew 14. up, we used to watch Alay Law and uh, Murder, She Wrote and Quincy Eden E. <laughs> so those were the type of things that, yeah. that, that fascinated me as a child. So um, I think I was five years old when I told my mother, I want to write a book and I want to be a doctor, which fortunately I've done both now. <laughs> but in any case, um, and as I started then reading her books, I realized, but this is exactly what I wanted to do. And I think it was that realization, I want to help people, but not in the normal sense of, 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 of normal doctors, you know, sitting and consulting with patients or operating on them. And even when I did medicine, um, as much as it was fascinating, my heart always had this pull towards forensic pathology. And I always knew that's what I wanted to do. You know, that's what I read. That's what I watch. That's what I really love doing. Um, as much as it is, I think, um, quite a morbid idea for most people. And looking at what we look at, I think it is quite daunting at times. But I, I absolutely love what I do. I wouldn't do anything else. And contrary to what your dentist friend was saying, I wouldn't. I would ex make exactly the same choice I did. We're talking this evening to Dr. Hestel van Staden, the fascinating world of forensic pathology. If you've got somebody in your family who's considering this career in forensic pathology, the answer, the question I'm going to ask next is really important, I think, as to what your state of mind needs to be, whether or not you... Uh, get counselling, whether or not, I mean, GPs, you see GPs in a bad state because they get talked back to all day by patients who feel very sorry for themselves. They did talk back too, but in a different way. We'll talk about her book, Blood Has a Voice, Tales from the Autopsy Table as well, coming up in a moment. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Forensic pathologist Dr. Hestel van Staden with us this evening, uh, talking to us about the process of becoming a forensic pathologist, her rationale for doing so, and her desire to do so. The the the, the process of dealing with death and the fact that the dead also speak, but speak in a very different way. They speak through the evidence that is left behind, either by the perpetrator or by the consequence of their death. I think that probably speaks as loudly as me going to my GP with man flu and whinging how sick I feel, Hestel. Absolutely. It's incredibly important that we know what we're looking at and interpret those findings correctly. There's something in forensic pathology which we call low-cards principle. It's something that I go into a little bit in the book as well, where um, the perpetrator leaves evidence on the victim as well as, as on the environment and other way around, the environment on the perpetrator and the victim yeah. on, the, um, on the perpetrator as well. And it's basically a forensic triangle if you want to. And one needs to look for what those evidence what that evidence is so that we can correctly interpret that and then come to a solid and scientific conclusion which is obviously what we base our findings on what about your emotional state i mean it, 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 it do you ever like i said this to my gp the one day she was feeling um, a, a bit down in the mouth and i said to her but do you, like, do you ever go and talk to somebody about all the stuff that you have to listen to all day you listen to people's moans and groans you never meet a happy person um, because people only come to see you when they're at their worst and you get to see people truly at their at their very worst. Absolutely. But you know what, Bruce, what I always say is when I see the, the bodies of the deceased people, the, the worst has already happened. Nothing worse can still happen to them. Um, sure. And now it is my opportunity to actually treat them with respect one last time. 
and to to tell their stories in inverted commas, to make sure that I collect every single piece of evidence, to make sure that I document every wound and accurately interpret that so that I can do two things. The one is to help attain justice for the, the deceased, but also by doing so, be able to answer questions that families might have. Now, we don't really speak to families ourselves, but through the process, they do get answers. And um, I think I would probably be depressed if I had to listen to to patients all day moaning and groaning about flu or man flu, as you say. For me, this is not a depressing job at all. It feels like I'm doing something and I'm actually helping and I'm part of a process yeah. that's that's making a difference. Uh, but does it make you question humanity? Because it certainly would make me question humanity, considering the sort of awful things that people are capable of doing to each other and the sort of stuff that you have to unravel from time to time. You must really question, and I don't know if it goes through phases, if you can almost predict economic cycles or you can see economic cycles, you can see the state of a nation through what ends up on a pathology table. Can you? I suppose to an extent you can. Um, if we look at COVID, we saw, you know, a drop in the amount of crime because people didn't go out, they didn't have access to alcohol, for example. So they tended to stay indoors. The crime rate was slightly lower in terms of what we saw. But, um, yeah, I do think, I think it takes a different mentality to do forensic pathology. I think we are just wired a little bit differently. Um in order to make sure that I don't miss anything, I have to be able to think what is the worst thing somebody could have done to somebody else. Um, you know, obviously one doesn't want to dwell on that too much. But at the end of the day, I need to make sure that I'm not missing anything. And um, yeah, it does make you look at life and at people slightly different. I think differently. I think it makes one a bit more wary because we know what people can do to one another. Um, but you know, the general public, the normal run of the mill person don't do all these horrible things. These are the basically the outliers. And, and you're, you're part of the process of justice as well, in, in terms of holding people account for their act, to account for their actions. Absolutely. And um, I think that's one of my main drivers. It is absolutely amazing to be able to to play that part. And I think that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book and also why we did the TV series Autopsy is to actually show people that as much as we are faced with a terrible crime situation in South Africa, and I don't want to take anything away from that because it really is a, a major problem, yeah. but that there are people who are committed and who are trying, and I'm not talking about myself only, I'm talking about the police officers and the prosecutors and forensic scientists. We are a team making this effort and actually really applying our minds and to who for whom it is a passion. Um, people who go above and beyond to try and get justice for those who can't yeah. speak for themselves anymore. So I think, you know, that was one of the main things and one of the main reasons I did all of this. It's a highly specialized area as well, forensic pathology. I don't think that that many of you in the country, are there? No, there's very few. Um, at any given time, probably around 60 to 70 of us, the majority of the work is being done by forensic medical officers who are medical doctors who only does a, or who does a diploma through the Colleges of Medicine, not a, spe a full speciality, because there's simply too few of us to be able to, to cover the extent of the work. And especially in the rural areas, we really have to rely on forensic medical officers to do the, you know, the brunt of the work.
Uh, and then uh, uh, again, ensuring that justice is is done. I thank you so much for sharing with us this evening, Dr. Estelle von Staden, forensic pathologist. Thirteen years of study—that is the amount of time that you need to commit uh, to becoming a forensic pathologist. In terms of any other special specialization in medicine as well, well, you will get the the the, the uh, what's he called a maxillofacial surgeon. Get Craig on one of these days. Craig's got a very different view. It's <laughs> very cross about the amount of time that he spent um, and and the sort of monetary returns that you can get. I'll see next time Craig is digging about in my face uh, to see whether or not he's willing to come onto the Money Show and share with us his experience. But Estelle van Staden, thank you very much. Forensic pathologist this evening. Unusual ways of making money.